This is Voice America Business. Good morning, and thank you for joining host Cheryl Esposito for an intriguing hour of Leading Conversations. Each week, Cheryl brings together big thinkers to the Voice America Business Channel. Now here's your host, Cheryl Esposito. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Leading Conversations. This morning we have with us Betty Sue Flowers, who is a poet, an editor, an author, educator. She's a business consultant to multinational corporations and currently holds the position of director of the Lyndon Baines Johnson Presidential Library in Austin, Texas. Betty Sue, welcome to the show. Thank you, Cheryl. I'm just really delighted to be here with you. Oh, likewise. I am privileged to have you here. I had the opportunity to meet Betty Sue about, a, it was just about a year ago, Betty Sue. I think so, yeah. Yeah, we were at the Omega Institute. Um, you and Peter Senge and, and Otto, um, Otto Sharma and Joe Jaworski. We were, the four of you were doing a unique gathering of uh, presencing. And I was very intrigued and very impressed with how you all let flow happen. Very unusual for conferences. And we all got so much out of it. Today we're looking at creating the new story of leadership. And I am excited that you are involved in this conversation, Betty Sue, because you have such a great Perspective on the world. I love the way you use storytelling and poetry, and you have an ability to see in a way that many of us do not. And so I'm hoping we can get to some of the core of some of the story of leadership, the way you see it today. Um, so I'm tell me a little bit about how you are actually now, as director of the Presidential Library, how you have begun to apply the concept of storytelling as you are moving the library into the future? Well, one of the key features of storytelling these days is the social networking that's happening on the Internet. So we are building rooms for conversations about citizenship all across the country and indeed the world, just as your show has listeners from all over the world. We're building conversations about citizenship and democracy. So a lot of the activity of the library, in fact, goes on outside the library. Oh, really? And, you know, that, that points to a key feature of leadership into the 21st century, which is that it's going to have to be leadership in groups, of groups, related to groups. I think the paradigm of the old leader on a horse, the hero leader, is somewhat, uh, it's not as effective as it used to be. And this, the leadership that happens in groups is an utterly different kind of thing, and everything is supporting it. That is, all the networks that have evolved, all the, the uh, women who are now in um, leadership positions in businesses and who have a much more collaborative style, at least traditionally. Mm-hmm. So I think we're seeing an evolution in leadership that the world hasn't seen before. Why do you think this has happened? How did we get here? Partly it's the position of women, partly it's the uh, new technology, partly it's the nature of the problems of leadership themselves. For example, when you have a really difficult problem like global warming, there is no way one person can lead a solution Mm -hmm. to that. Mm -hmm. We have to have, in this case, individual 
heroes or leaders from all over the world coming together to solve this problem. And it's huge. So until we can learn to work uh, together in groups and creatively in groups, mm-hmm. these mm-hmm. big problems won't be solved. And, and it seems like, let's just take that issue of global warming, uh, it seems like suddenly we've hit this tipping point, and all of a sudden, even though this has been known for many, many years, suddenly everybody is agreeing, oh, yes, we have a problem now, and we have to do something to solve it. And you're seeing things move really fast, um, which uh, I have to say that about three years ago, I would have said never would have happened you know, as fast as it's happening now. I think Phillips Corporation just announced... Um, a few days ago that they are going to phase out the um, incandescent light bulb uh, in favor of um, fluorescent light bulbs. And, you know, something like that, that's their mainstay of their entire business, that they can make that announcement and say within, you know, a year, I think it was a year or two years, they're going to do this. That's huge. That is huge. That's huge. It also points to the role that businesses have in leadership in the 21st century. You know, every century or every epoch has its own traditional or um, characteristic institution. In medieval times, it was the church, mm-hmm. and then it was the princely palaces. Well, now it's business. That mm-hmm. is the archetypal enterprise of our time. And so when business gets into the picture, um, then things change. Things begin to happen. And it seems that it then, if it's business, then it has to be connected to the bottom line, to the economics of all of it. So how do we reconcile this? We have a stock market that drives business activity every day. It drives the ability or the willingness of corporations and businesses, even governments, to look at short-term profits versus long-term vision. How do we reconcile this? Well, once again, it shows, I think, the need for people to work together because one of the things that business does have is a ground of, uh, it's kind of like a game, that is their rules. Mm. And if they get together and come up with new rules such, such that everyone shares in the cost, as we do now with safety rules, for example, or rules about child labor, if people come up, come together and agree on rules that equal, that level the playing field, mm-hmm then great things can happen. And um, you could change the rules about um, reporting, quarterly reports. You could change all kinds of rules that would make a difference in our short-term outlook, the, the kind of outlook yeah. we have now. Yeah. Well, I've heard you say that the role of the leader, or in this case, groups of leaders, um, really need to help actualize the emerging futures. And I know you have a strong belief in um, people doing personal work, personal development work, in order to show up in a way that matters in the world. Could you talk a little bit about your belief around that? Yes, it actually comes out of my experience working with groups and watching how groups work. Uh, One of the things that we'll need in order to have creative groups is the ability to leave your ego at the door. Now, that doesn't happen without a kind of discipline and self-awareness. And for most of us... um, (laughs) That's not a birthright. We have to earn that. It's a difficult process to to know how to look at ourselves objectively from outside ourselves and how to just drop the ego so that we can become one with a group. And we're not just um, biding our time until we're waiting to speak. You know, a lot of conversation is is people just waiting for their turn to make their point. It doesn't have much to do with listening. 
Mm. But the kind of deep listening that leads to the emergence of creativity in groups comes out of the capacity to leave your ego behind. Mm. How do we do this in politics? <laughs> well, yeah, <I> know. <laughs> politics is a game of ego. So Absolutely. So it's a game using the ego, um, you'd have to do a form of jujitsu or magic to get <laughs> the ego out of politics. Uh-huh. But I think what happens is, and this is happening now, that citizens in general are getting smarter than their political game. That is, they're ahead of the game. That's why it translates into disgust for politics, but that's not necessary. If people saw politics as a game of the ego, and if they saw the politics as the business of freedom, it is the business of freedom. Oh, interesting. If they saw that and then said, okay, this is a game of ego, what we're going to do is call the game as a game and allow more moments in which candidates can drop the ego that they're playing and be authentic. And there are these breakthrough moments that happen, and people really respond to them. But the game doesn't allow that to happen uh, sustainably or very often. Then I think you'll see politics uh, beginning to change, but that will take us to be leaders then, not oh. the politicians. Mm-hmm. Politicians are not going to make this happen. Yeah. But, you know, that's something that I appreciate hearing you say that. It's one of the things I've felt for many years is that we as a society have, have given up our power in, in the game of politics in the role and we have then said to our politicians you fix it and then when they do something we don't like we you know absolutely annihilate them and not that everybody always says the right thing however we elected them yes and so you know i'm curious now how do we how do how do i how do you take a stand and be a player in that game well at the moment politics is a business like all businesses that's run on money so what we have to do is have a campaign on behalf of certain positions or ideas in which we raise the money for candidates who pledge to support those ideas. And therefore, we're not voting on personality or charisma, which comes out of the old paradigm of leadership, you know, who's the prettiest or the handsomest or the most charismatic. Right. But over those who say, I'm competent to work for these ideals, and I promise to do so. And then... That's the way that you get, you run a campaign on behalf of ideas and not on behalf of candidates. Do you see um, candidates, you know, I see candidates very much as, again, leaders of the business of politics or the business of of multinational corporations. Do you see these leaders being willing to do the hard work, the personal work to get to their authentic core? Well, this is... um, this is really a, a good question, Cheryl, because I've known some politi- politicians, national politicians, who, in fact, have done the work. They have gotten to a personal core, but they are so trapped in the game mm-hmm. that you will never see it. Right. That is, it's like an actress playing Medea. Uh, you go out and play it, <laughs> but that's not who you are. Right, right. Well, we're going to keep talking about this. We'll be going to break, and we'll be right back. From the stock market floor to your computer, you're listening to Voice America Business. 
Leadership is not static. It evolves as you do. At Alexa Consulting, we work with CEOs, senior leaders, and leaders in transition who want to make a difference. Leaders who believe that good business is good for people, good for the world, and knows that conscious actions can have global impact. Are you ready to take your leadership to the next level? If you are, then visit our website at www.alexaconsulting.com. That's www.alexaconsulting.com. Alexa Consulting, developing leaders worldwide. It has been said that to live is to choose, but to choose well, you must know who you are and what you stand for, where you want to go, and why you want to get there. On Reap What You Sow, with host, performance management specialist, and executive coach, Alana Daly, achievement and success through expanding yourself and your life is available at the click of a mouse. Reap through redefining your goals. Educate your mind, your body, your conscious, and unconscious. Apply what you learn and plan, and it shall be. Success over and over again, and wealth result when you Reap regularly. Reap what you sow with Alana Daly. Broadcast each Thursday at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel. Reap what you sow. Learn the rules of the game. Then play better than anyone else. Tune in every Tuesday at 8 a.m. Pacific time for The Growth Strategist with Aldana Ambler. On the show, Aldana and some of today's top business professionals will discuss some of today's most pressing business issues that hold you, the business owner, back. Aldana will also give you 21 ways to grow with her list of growth strategies. Grow smart, grow profit, and grow your business with Aldana Ambler and The Growth Strategist every Tuesday at 8 a.m. Pacific time, right here on the bottom line in business talk, Voice America Business. 401s, stock, mortgage, retirement, wealth. We cover it all. Voice America Business. We appreciate you joining our leading conversations today. If you would like to participate in today's conversation, please call us now at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Now back to your host, Cheryl. We're speaking today with Betty Sue Flowers, co-author of Presence, and Exploration of Profound Change in People, Organizations, and Society. And Betty Sue, we were just talking about politicians and how they sometimes have a tough time. They go and they do their personal work, they do personal exploration, and then when they come back into the political game, it doesn't necessarily work for them. Could you talk more about that? Yes. We, for one thing, we are prejudiced against people who've been in psychoanalysis. Um, all every kind of help is considered a form of weakness. Um, the only thing we allow is a certain formula for the expression of religious belief, but it's a very narrow formula. And any other kind of uh, admission, and that's what it's considered to be an admission, right. that you have been helped or that you have done some training is uh, is chalked up to weakness. And, you know, corporate executives um, have somewhat the same prejudice, except the companies are so far ahead of the game of politics mm. that, uh, thankfully, it's getting to be less so. But there, there used to be a time when a corporate executive who said, well, I've been out in the wilderness or whatever, would, uh, you weren't sure you could trust him. Right. That's all changed, but right. not in politics. But not in politics. Interesting. Politics is way behind corporations. I have an email here from Steve Craven of Colorado, and he writes, In the book Presence, which you co-authored, there's a discussion about governing ideas. 
Bill O'Brien, the former CEO of Hanover Insurance, is quoted as saying that the fundamental problem with most businesses is that they're governed by mediocre ideas. Can you expand on this and what might be several governing ideas that would best serve the world today? Well, if you're talking about companies, um, as Bill was doing, one of the governing ideas you could consider is just return on investment. That's a very solid governing idea. It's a good one. Mm-hmm. But it won't inspire people mm-hmm. because unless you give an idea that's larger than the individual corporation, unless you offer a business to be in that serves, you will not draw forth from people their heart or even their best effort. So um, I think Bill was talking about things like that. Now, in politics, I think every candidate who inspires people to go knocking on doors to get out the vote is connected somehow to something greater than himself or herself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And when you feel that, then you know to, you, you feel that you, you belong to a movement and not just to someone's career. Mm-hmm. That's an interesting distinction belonging to a movement versus someone's career. And that speaks to what you were saying earlier around the um, the leader. It can't just be charismatic anymore. It can't That's just right. be the personality. Well, and then I, I have to ask this question because what's going on in, in our presidential campaign these days with Osama, um, you know, I'm sorry, Obama, um, not Osama, um, he is so charismatic and people are are so excited that someone with a um, seemingly with fresh ideas is willing to stand up and speak them. Um, what do you think is going on with that? Oh, I think he inspires young people. I think they're out knocking on doors to get out the vote. I was talking to someone this morning who had interviewed a bunch of uh, students uh, for Marshall fellowships, and he said he was astonished at how many of them put down their resumes that they had worked. He was doing this in Illinois that they had worked for Obama, you know, getting out the vote for his Senate campaign, and he won unexpectedly. So I think when someone can inspire people with hope, as he does, um, it, it opens up the field to all kinds of possibilities. Now, I should add that in the game of politics, anything can happen. Mm-hmm. And the media have such a role to play yeah. that if they decide to bring someone down in whatever way mm-hmm. um, just to get an interesting story, things can turn on a dime. So. Right. You can't, there's no prediction I would make. As right. a futurologist, I don't make predictions. <laughs> As a futurologist, well, that's a good title. <laughs> that's what I do. That's it uh, doesn't mean predictions. It means looking carefully at the story you're telling about the future mm. and uh, looking to see what is informing that story. Mm. Well, and so would you consider our media futurologists? Well, they don't usually talk about the future. Mm-hmm. They talk, but... They have a great deal to do with the future because they interpret the present. They're mm-hmm. our storytellers. So they interpret what's going on. You could tell completely different stories about the present, but uh, the media tend to herd around a certain interpretation of events. Mm-hmm. And so they, they have a great deal to do with what we think is possible in right. the future. Right. And, and so they must have influence on corporations and businesses. The media oh. must drive a lot of the action taken or not taken by corporations or businesses, yeah? Well, not as much as you would think. Um, most media, most reporters are not that interested in business, except for the business reporters. And so unless huh. there's a scandal, uh-huh. I think business is not very well reported on. There are many exciting things happening in human relations in business, many exciting things, and you never read about them 
uh, in the press. Hmm. So mostly they're concerned with uh, politics, political events. Hmm. I'd like to go back to the concept of leaders going deep into themselves. What are some of the things that you have experienced with leaders who have said, I want more, I want to be able to either be a better leader or have a more fulfilling career or life or contribute in a bigger way. What are some of the things that you have seen them do? Well, in every case, I should say what the outcome is. In every case uh, of any leader that has done that that I have observed, they come out wanting to serve something larger than they Mm -hmm. had wanted to serve before. Mm -hmm. And the second thing that you see, they come out with a much more sensitive awareness of everyone in the institution, including people like the janitors. I mean, it's astonishing how their perspective of human beings widens. Mm -hmm. Those are two hallmarks of a leader who's been transformed. Mm -hmm. How do they become transformed? There are any of a number of ways, and um, it really varies according to the personality. Um, Mm -hmm. Some go into the wilderness. Uh, I think you had John Milton on your Show, yes, yes. Very adept at, at doing that. Um, some take up disciplines such as meditation, mm-hmm. others psychoanalysis, others executive coaching. There are any of a number of ways to go deeper. Mm-hmm. But once you go on that journey, and it takes a lot of courage, but once you go on that journey, you never look back. Hmm. How have you kept yourself authentic? Well, if you become very open to the universe, mm-hmm. the universe gives you hints. It's one of the magical things that happens. um, The Swiss psychoanalyst C.G. Jung, Mm -hmm. uh, spelled J-U-N-G, was very good at uh, talking about this. He used the word synchronicity. And Joe Jaworski and I did a book before the presence book uh, on synchronicity, which is if you are connected to an aim larger than yourself, what begins to happen are all these synchronicities, as if by magic. So... I can just tell you something that happened yesterday. Um, I wanted to, I I built a presidential timeline using all the presidential library assets of the 12 presidential libraries. I had this idea, it got built, it's on the web, and I thought, you know, I'd love the American experience to use some of that uh, there from WGBH. Well, just as I thought that, the very next day, they called me. Now, that is so typical. You think of something, Mm. you would like it to happen, and it's... It, it happens out of the universe, and I. It sounds like magic, but anybody who's been down this path, and Joe's book, you know, details a lot of it. Mm-hmm. You find out exactly the person you need calls you, exactly the people you want to work with, uh, like WGBH calls you. Uh, the exact thing happens, and when that begins to happen, the universe itself keeps you in tune with the wonders that um, that are out there to be experienced if you're if you're on that wavelength. I hear this a lot, and I know that um, many people who are listening today probably also hear this a lot, um, and yet we slip out of this practice of staying present to the universe and, and paying attention to the cues. What do you do to keep yourself connected to that? Well, there are, I always use a journal, and I use it not to complain, but to look and appreciate. Hmm. And once you do a daily practice of appreciation, you begin to see the things that are intending to help you. Mm-hmm. I always tell a little story um, about uh, you know three brothers who are 
set out on a quest. And the youngest one, whose name is Dumb Hans or Stupid Jack, always gets the key to the castle or whatever because he sees a horse in the road and he says, Hello, horse, what can I do for you? And he <laughs> always has the key to the castle. Or the Well, the next year, what they don't talk about is that you've got a, you know, a book that has how to succeed on the quest. And the two oldest brothers who fail before say, Oh, they, they find a fox in the road. They say, Oh, and they look, there's a chapter on horses, but not on foxes. Get out of my way, fox, I'm on a quest. And the youngest son always stops and says, Hello, fox, who are you? Can I help you? And the fox has the key to the castle, etc. Well, the, the point of the story is that there's always help there in the road. And it's not the how-to book that shows you how to do it. Mm. It's your way of being. Mm. It's your way of being that elicits the help that is already there. Well, now, the self-help industry is not going to like hearing that. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> I, I believe in the self-help industry because it attunes you. Yes. It tunes you to the, yes. It's sort of like working out in order to run a race. Mm-hmm. It's not the race, mm-hmm. but it wakes you up. So that's your practice. Yes, indeed. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Well, now, I know that you have written poetry. Where did that start in you? Well, I think we all, uh, as children, speak poetry. We get, we get enamored with the sounds, and we repeat them over and over and over. We love language. So everyone's first language is poetry, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. And then what happens is some people lose it and some people stay children. Mm-hmm. And I guess I uh, I just kept the poetry because I've, I've always had it. and I, Any young child always has it. The sounds they make rhyme at the very beginning of oh, life. interesting, yeah. So it's never not been with me. Oh, interesting. Well, and you use your poetry in your consulting work, yes? I do, but not. Uh, I don't spout poetry at people. Um, what poetry does is make you aware of symbols and of things that happen in life that have deep meaning and that you don't have to explain. Hmm. And so if you become alert to symbols, which is what reading and writing poetry allows you to do, hmm. you have a whole level of enrichment hmm. uh, that makes life come alive. Can you give an example of a symbol you're talking about? Yes. I was teaching a class um, on the Odyssey in which the goddess Athena figures, and you know she comes as an owl very often. Mm-hmm. And so I told my class, now, you just be alert because she appears as an owl. And at that point, we were on the second floor, a student just pointed out the window, and there in the branch was an owl. <laughs> and all the students rushed over to the window. Well, they sat back down, and yes, we were still talking about the Odyssey, but the whole atmosphere was totally changed. Yeah completely magical. Oh, how wonderful. Sounds like uh, that moment in the presence book when Peter, I think Peter and Otto were with John and was Joe there too and they were in Crestone and the the lightning struck. Oh, yeah. <laughs> when they were talking yeah. about what's next. <laughs> <laughs> Those things happen all the time. All the time. And you can be trained to do that. Say more about that. Well, um, Well, wait. Don't say more about that. You can say more about that after the break. (laughs) Thanks, Betty Sue. We'll be right back. You're listening to The Bottom Line in Business Talk. Voice America Business. 
Leadership is not static. It evolves as you do. At Alexa Consulting, we work with CEOs, senior leaders, and leaders in transition who want to make a difference. Leaders who believe that good business is good for people, good for the world, and knows that conscious actions can have global impact. Are you ready to take your leadership to the next level? If you are, then visit our website at www.alexaconsulting.com. That's www.alexaconsulting.com. Alexa Consulting, developing leaders worldwide. Not everyone is aware that you can actually make a large sum of money selling domain names. In fact, buying and selling domain names is fast becoming the new 21st century real estate. Domain investing with Dale Merritt is the forefront of this new internet gold rush and has opened the door for both the beginner investor and active investor to partner with valuable domain names. Listen live every Thursday at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time on the Voice America Business Channel as Dale brings to you over 14 years of online business experience and reveals the secrets to domain investing. Discover how to build your own business model for buying premium domain names and building valuable online real estate. Domain Investing with Dale Merritt unlocks the secrets to online investing and offers this knowledge and wealth to the public. Tune in every Thursday at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time right here on the Voice America Business Channel. The economy and financial markets continue to expand in both their size and complexity. But being able to anticipate changes in the markets for housing, jobs, and financial assets remains a crucial ingredient to our financial well-being. On the economy and the markets, with economist, investment strategist, portfolio manager, and host, Doug Cliggett, utilizes his 25 years of experience with that of his highly informed guests to provide clear, reasoned explanations of current events. To navigate the markets that influence our lives every day of the week, tune into The Economy and the Markets with Doug Cliggett, broadcasting each Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel. The economy and the markets. Clear thoughts in a complex world. Keeping you a step ahead of the changing world of business. This is Voice America Business. We appreciate you joining our leading conversations today. If you would like to participate in today's conversation, please call us now at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Now back to your host, Cheryl. We're speaking with Betty Sue Flowers this morning. And Betty Sue, we were just speaking about um, the concept of how you train yourself to pay attention to the synchronicities in the universe. And a question came in from a listener. Um, Nicole wrote, how does one use ideas from presence, the book presence, to help guide when to act and when to wait? And how do you know when you're pushing too hard versus going after what you vision for the future? And is there an easy way to make this distinction? This may fit with where you were headed. Yes, it does, and um, it's very difficult to talk about and not an easy thing to do. Um, it has to do with what part of yourself you're following when you're in a group, hmm. and you quickly learn to tell. It's almost like channels, changing channels. Hmm. There's a channel of the ego where you feel you have to press your point. Then there's a channel, I'd call it the channel of listening for guidance, in which you know when it is time to speak. And often people in that channel say, well, it came through me. I didn't even have that idea. It just came through me. Mm-hmm. And writers uh, practice that. They try to get to that zone or that channel where the thing feels like it's coming through you and not out of you. And at the ends of those kind of meetings or when you give yourself in that way, you don't feel depleted at all. In fact, you feel energized. 
Interesting. And what I'm about to say about training for synchronicity fits right into it because you, it's, it's, the, it's the muscle you use if you do this little exercise, which I used to always have my world literature classes do, oddly enough, um, before I became a CEO I was a professor. And um, one of the things that I would do uh, about two-thirds of the way in when we'd be studying Dante or whatever is to say, all right, um, the medieval people thought the universe could speak its spoken symbols. And let's do an exercise in which we assume that to, to be so. It's an as-if. You don't have to believe it, but for this exercise you have to practice it. It won't work unless your energy is up. That is, nothing will speak through you if you're not alert hmm. and highly energized hmm. because a low energy will not attract synchronicity. And by energy, I, I just mean the, the energy of listening. I don't mean, you know, moving your limbs about. And I said, so in order to get that energy, ask a question that you want to know the answer to. Not a question about, you know, what will I write on my paper, but does my boyfriend love me? Or, you know, what, what <laughs> will I get into architecture school? Something you really care about. Hmm. Walk out into the world, and I promise you that within seven minutes, the world will give you an answer. Seven minutes? Yes, they look very dubious, very <laughs> dubious. I say it's really important to be highly energized around your question. Within seven minutes, they're all back. In fact, the one that was back quickest uh, opened the door from the classroom and, and just sat back down. She said, I have my answer. <laughs> in her case, she, had, she was in accounting because her parents wanted her to be in accounting, but she really loved the theater. And so she said, what do I do with my life? She opened the door, and there was an exhibit of Shakespeare right across the hall. But she saw immediately shut the door, and she ended up being an accountant for a theater company. Oh, <laughs> for something she really cared yes, about. Yes, another student said, does my boyfriend love me? She just picked up on that illustration. So she sat under a tree, seven minutes were up, and she didn't think she had the answer to her question. But as she stood up, she saw she'd been sitting on a piece of heart-shaped paper. Oh. <laughs> you know, you couldn't make these things up. That's anyway, great. the point is that if you're in a certain place, the universe appears to speak to you. It appears that way. I'm not making any claim that it does or that things magically, you know, someone magically put that piece of paper there. Mm -hmm. It's just that you notice things. You notice things in a highly symbolic and personal way. You listen for what wants to be born. And presence is all about the kind of listening that allows what wants to be born and that's, you know, to emerge. Hmm. I want to get back to the question of um, how in the world do you teach business leaders to do this? I mean, it sounds simple, and I imagine you've done it, and I imagine that it takes a special type of person to say, okay, Betty Sue, I'll do this, even though I've got a multi-billion dollar corporation to run, I'll go stand outside for seven minutes. I mean, how do you actually get them to do this stuff? Well, there are two kinds of teaching in business if you're an outside person. Uh, one is as a, a coach, and I've done that uh, occasionally and, and uh, kind of not, uh, I guess you could say, not officially. Mm -hmm. In that case, the person is already hungry. And if they're hungry to move to a deeper level, um, it, there's not a problem in getting them to try things. And I, I don't insist that they try things in front of other people. Mm -hmm. So that's not too hard. What is hard is when you're working with a team or a group and there's one or two members of the group who just don't believe in what you're doing or don't believe in what the group is wanting to do, really. They, they could care less about you one way or another if you're an outside consultant. In that case, what you have to do is include these 
outliers in the group in a way that's positive without telling a story about them that isn't true. In other words, you don't tell a story that they've bought into it. Uh, you actually include them as, as productive members of the group even when they don't consider themselves to be productive members of the group. Uh, I can give one example of a person we worked with in a, in a bank who had the responsibility uh, but not the authority to do a huge transformation in the bank. And there was mm. one vice president who just wasn't going to go along with it. Mm. And so we said, well, uh, consider her to be on your team. He said, no, you don't understand. She's not. He said, well, consider her to be on your team. What role would she play? And he said, well, she could tell us everything that's going wrong. So he asked <laughs> her to do that. Would you, she he went to her and said, you know, I know you don't believe in this, but could you just, as I try to roll this out, tell us everything that's going wrong? She said, gladly. Well, she ended up being a very valuable member of the team. Right. right. You didn't have to change her mind. Right. But that's the kind of intervention that, that you can do, which is more strategic in relation to where, what the story someone is telling about what's going on. We just mm. changed the story or allowed him to change the story. Is that it's fascinating because I think we've lost a lot of that willingness to accept differences of opinion in our society, and it certainly um, has led into our or corporations or organizations. As I look at the political climate um, in the U.S. these days and for the last few years, it's been um, a challenge for people who disagree with what's happening on a global level to um, be vocal about this. And so how did we how did we get there where we said, it doesn't matter, we don't care if you have a difference of opinion, whether we're in a democracy or not, we don't want to hear this. And how did, how did we get there, and how do we get out of it? Well, I think we got there in part because of the business of media, which means if you're not in the conversation that's going on at the time, uh, it's not that you're considered to be in it and against it. You're just not even considered. That is, you're right. not even there. Right. So in order to be part of the conversation, you have to accept the story that's being told about reality. And... Um, that is part of the tyranny of culture. The so tyranny of culture. The tyranny of culture is that it captures us in its stories about what is real. Oh, wow. For example, that love is dangerous, or, uh, you know, there are a lot of stories out there, and they are just stories. Mm-hmm. And every every comment about the future is just a story. Mm-hmm. Um, that's That's how the future appears to us, as a story. So... Because that's the case, we are caught in the tyranny of our stories, uh, which are cultural. Uh, it's very difficult for an alternate story of reality to make its way through the architecture of the story that we're in. Hmm. And, and so I, I see that can be happening at an individual level, a family level, um, team level, organization. I mean, it can just filter all the way out globally. You know, what story are we living in on this planet? Um, there's a question from a listener here, just email came in. Some say that there is nothing wrong with what is happening on the planet um, that couldn't be resolved with a new human belief system. Um, he wants to know if you agree with this, and if so, what new belief system would we be heading toward? I agree. I agree totally. And the belief, I don't think, however, I wouldn't put it in terms of belief because um, when you think you have to believe something, then we're into religious wars. Um, Mm. And I I think I know what he's talking about, but I just want to be very clear about the language. Mm -hmm. If we had a new story about what's possible and if we began to work together towards that story, Mm -hmm. 
then, yes, great change could happen. Great change. Um, and it's, it's one of the things that happened in the founding of our country. We have every reason to believe a story can make a difference. We, you know, we began to tell a story that uh, the old story was that only kings had rights. We began to tell a story that all men are created equal hmm. and endowed by their creator with certain basic, they called them unalienable rights. That's a new story. It's so radical. It's completely radical. And yet, when enough people began to believe that story, we created a new system of living together. Hmm. And so, and that system of living together is, would you say that that's our society today? Our society today comes in part from it. From that. Yes. Now, we have a different kind of society because we're not, we're no longer in the democratic myth, as I call it. Those are large cultural stories. We're in the economic myth. And it's got different rules from the democratic myth. So the democratic myth was uh, came about in part in relation to the enlightenment myth of reason. So we believed you could reach truth from any side of the mountain. Now in the economic myth, in which numbers are key, uh, we poll to find the truth. We poll to find the truth. Yeah, it's a majority kind of thing, which is not about truth at all. One person could be speaking the truth and 99 people not. And it's still only one person speaking the truth. So we're, we're in a totally different myth system with different rules from when our country was founded. So what's the next myth? Well, um, you can't just create myths from whole cloth. So back to the email, the person who emailed the question about a different belief system. Mm-hmm. It has to arise from the myth that we're in at the moment. And for me, the, the hopeful myth I see arising or potentially arising from the economic myth is something I call the ecological myth. The economic myth is, you know, economics is all about connections. We're all connected. Tom Friedman has the idea of a country with a, you know, McDonald's not <laughs> not going to war with another country. So the environmental myth can arise from that. Betty Sue, I'm sorry to interrupt you. We will be right back. Sure. You're listening to The Bottom Line in Business Talk. Voice America Business. Leadership is not static. It evolves as you do. At Alexa Consulting, we work with CEOs, senior leaders, and leaders in transition who want to make a difference. Leaders who believe that good business is good for people, good for the world, and knows that conscious actions can have global impact. Are you ready to take your leadership to the next level? If you are, then visit our website at www.alexaconsulting.com. That's www.alexaconsulting.com. Alexa Consulting, developing leaders worldwide. Have you ever had a bad day and wish someone could come along and change it at the flip of a switch? Do you dream of living the life of wealth, great relationships, and the perfect job, but don't know where to start? Then tune into The Winner's Attitude with corporate trainers, motivators, authors, and hosts, Jeff and Val G. No difficult strategies or complicated keys. Jeff and Val present a powerful and effective technology to switch your operating system to create the most amazing life. It has been said that winners have simply formed the habit of doing amazing things. Know how to activate that switch, and so can you. The Winner's Attitude with Jeff and Val G. Broadcast each Friday at 8 a.m. Pacific, 11 a.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel. The Winner's Attitude. Switch me on. Are you feeling slammed and suckered in today's stock market? If so, then you need to tune in to Profitable Investing with Jordan Kimmel. Every Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, Jordan Kimmel will train you in what you can do to beat up the big boys on Wall Street 
as well as share his secrets to success so that you can buy and sell like a profit-pumping pro. Grab the bull market by the horns and listen to Profitable Investing with Jordan Kimmel every Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time right here on the bottom line of business talk, Voice America Business. From the stock market floor to your computer, you're listening to Voice America Business. We appreciate you joining our leading conversations today. If you would like to participate in today's conversation, please call us now at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Now back to your host, Cheryl. Welcome back to Leading Conversations. We're speaking with Betty Sue Flowers this morning. Betty Sue, we were speaking about the concept of myth, and you shared how we've moved from the democratic myth to the economic myth, and that the economic myth is about connections. Could you say more about that? Well, it's about connections in terms of numbers. That is, my dollar is as good as your dollar. So it's about, it has a leveling effect. And it's the first truly global, uh, the other reason it's about connections, it's the first truly global myth because it doesn't have a barrier of language. Hmm. It's all about figures and images. Hmm. So for that reason, it's got, um, it's got great potential to give rise to another myth, uh, which we were talking about, the, what I would call the ecological or environmental myth. Mm-hmm. And that myth uh, of interconnectedness could arise. It hasn't quite yet, but I, I see signs of uh, some emergence there because uh, you cannot just make up a myth, which is to say a large cultural story. It, it has to emerge. Well, I think it's interesting. The word myth has come to be used very much as something that's not true. That's right. But if you look in some dictionaries, the third meaning of it is a large cultural story, a story that we believe in implicitly. And I should say in the West we have two other myths. In addition to the democratic and the economic myth, we have the hero myth and the religious myth. And again, I stress that by myth, I don't mean an untrue story. I mean a big cultural story. Right, right. Now, the hero story is the best myth in which to, um, well, to tell stories, because it's medium is stories, in the same way that the economic myth, the medium is figures and images. Mm-hmm. The story is the myth of the hero, which is why newspapers and media always report in terms of hero, who's a good mm-hmm. guy, who's a bad guy. It's very hard for them to report group news, as it were. Hmm. It's always individualized and either demonized or made heroic. Hmm. So they like to puff up one person one day and tear him down the next because that makes for the tragic hero myth. Hmm. And so this ecological myth that may be emerging, um, I know that there's a lot of skeptics and people say, oh, all of these organizations, these multinational corporations, they're just jumping on the bandwagon, quote-unquote, um, even though for years they've been lying to uh, the people on the planet. They haven't you know, taken responsibility for how they've been damaging the planet or they haven't taken action that they could have taken until suddenly it becomes a sexy thing to do. Um, how can people trust that this has good intention or does that matter? Well, I'd say a few things about that. Um, first, I don't think trust is necessary. Uh, it was George Washington who said, eternal vigilance is the price of liberty. But I think goodwill is, and I think uh, trust is a choice. That is, you can choose to trust that someone who says, I really want to do right by the planet, 
means that on behalf of their corporations. And I say that because I've worked with the World Business Council for Sustainable Development in creating scenarios for the future of the globe, global environment and also, lately, water scenarios. Now, that's 127 or more multinationals. And what you're working with are not these faceless corporations. You're working with people. And the people in corporations truly care as much about the environment as we do who are outside corporations. And when you get people of goodwill acting together, they can really do great things in the world. So it's not that I trust business. I trust people in business to work together to make a difference. Hmm. And so if we trust them to work together to make a difference, this gets back to them having to do their individual work. And I know that's what the book Presence is about. And in there, we have an email um, that's asked the question about the you theory in the book Presence. And just so our listeners understand, can you briefly explain what the you theory is? Yes, I'll give a simplified version of it. Uh, Otto Scharmer uh, came up with this in conversations with Joe Jaworski. And basically, if you imagine a you and you imagine a group going through a process, the upper left-hand corner of the you uh, we called observe, 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 uh, quoting Brian Arthur. The first step in undoing what's happening now is just looking very closely and setting aside your frames about it or your stories about it. At a certain point, uh, when you're observing together and the old frames are broken, and if you're listening acutely to each other, and this is really key, the kind of listening, uh, without the ego, something emerges from within the group. We call that the bottom of the you. Um, if, you're, if the group is working to um, be more creative or to solve a problem, whether it's building cars or serving customers, some ideas begin to emerge. And then up on the upper right-hand side of the you is what we call crystallization. That is, then you have to uh, put the idea into practice, and we recommend for this kind of process rapid prototyping. That is not waiting until something's perfect, mm. but putting it out there as a form of dialogue and getting response back mm. internally within the company. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's a very oversimplified version of a process that's also highly tailored to individual situations. Right. And so what are some of the benefits of applying the U theory? Well, um, I think it was Einstein who said if you keep on... <laughs> doing the same thing, uh, expecting <laughs> different results as a form of madness, uh, a lot of corporations get stuck, yeah. and they need to break through and move to yeah. a new ground, and yeah. uh, so you need a process that breaks the old uh, paradigms or boxes or stories, however you want to phrase it. Well, and that brings the next question that this listener wrote, uh, what role might nature play in supporting the process, the you process or the theory? I think nature is very good, especially for the first two uh, parts of the U. Um, the first part about observe, observe, observe. Um, I know John Milton, among others, leads um, quests out in nature. Yes. Where you're by yourself, solo intensive. Yes. And you're really very observant. You become keenly attuned to sounds and changes in temperature and all sorts of things. So uh, nature helps there. Um, another thing is that if you're working in nature or if you take some time in nature, it's very hard to maintain the ego for very long in nature. Hmm. Uh, mountains and trees, you know, they give you a sense of your belonging in an ecosystem. Hmm. Um, as far as the crystallization part, um, to, my, to me, nature is not so close to that, except that whatever you do make should be in harmony with nature and not harm it. So 
So there is a sustainability issue on the upper side of the U. Interesting. Well, you know, I, um, I've had some of those experiences out in nature, and I absolutely agree with you that the ego goes away really fast. <laughs> because if, if you sit in your ego while you're sitting out there and listening to the bears and listening to all the animals and thinking that every little sound is a mountain lion when actually it's a little squirrel, um, you know, <laughs> you get yourself in trouble. <laughs> you can have a pretty miserable time. Absolutely. <laughs> so you have to let ego go and say, okay, I'm not the one who's important here. This beautiful place I'm in is important here, and what can I learn from that? And um, I think that the youth theory does definitely help people do that, whether it's out in nature or, you know, um, somewhere else. Um, so I'm I'm curious to know from you um, how you see the emerging story um, of our planet showing up um, as we move forward. Well, I think it began, and everything has a beginning back in time. It began when um, NASA released that picture of the globe as seen from space hmm. and that beautiful blue pearl that people around the world could relate to and knew that other people related to it. didn't belong to any one nation or ethnic group or gender or even any one generation. And that crystallized in consciousness that we're all in this together globally. And I think from then on that the NGOs around the world that are trying to make a difference had a much larger picture of what they were about. It wasn't just cleaning up their part of the highway near their house. Although that's important too. But that's important too, yeah. So if you were to leave our listeners with um, a couple of thoughts about what can an individual do if they're running a multinational corporation or if they're running their own life, what can an individual do um, to make a difference? As soon as you connect to a dream that's larger than yourself or your corporation or your own individual self-interest, a band of brothers will form. Brothers and sisters, of course, but uh, I'm, I'm quoting from Henry V. Um, you know, and when these people come together, you have so much fun. You feel so blessed to be working with those people. And then anything seems possible. So it's a sequence of things connecting to a larger dream, listening, being open to learning from the universe, being in dialogue with the universe, and then synchronicities begin to happen and... Um, it's a, it's a, your life uh, takes off on a whole different course. The only downside, uh, you don't, you're not in control. You're not out of control. But the things that happen are beyond what you could have made happen yourself. Hmm. And so it's important for us, it's imperative for us to be willing to be open, to be looking for those synchronicities in the universe, to be willing to let those in, and then to take action. Yes, and to expect that to be the case. And to expect that to be the case. Now, there you go. Great expectations. Absolutely. <laughs> Betty Sue, this has been a lovely conversation today. I really appreciate you being here. And, um, My pleasure, Cheryl. The book, Presence, An Exploration of Profound Change in People, Organizations, and Society, is on sale in bookstores everywhere. And Betty Sue, you can learn more about Betty Sue Flowers and the work she does. You can go to the website for the Johnson Presidential Library or go visit. It's a great place. Betty Sue, thank you very much. Uh, next week, we will be having Richard Strovey Heckler, and we will be looking at how a warrior leads from the heart. 
Remember, think big. The world could be a better place because of a conversation that matters. Thank you for spending this hour with Cheryl Esposito and Leading Conversations. You can listen live every Friday at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time on the Voice America Business Channel. If you have a question or comment for Cheryl, please email her at leadingconversations at alexaconsulting.com. That's L-E-A-D-I-N-G-C-O-N-B-E-R-S-A-T-I-O-N-S at A-L-E-X-S-A-C-O-N-S-U-L-T-I-N-G.com. See you next week.